Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 9th, 2017. The Nevertheless, She Persisted edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me here in Washington, D.C. is, of course, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Howdy, John. Howdy. And from uh, her cubicle, not her cubicle, her cubby. <laughs> it's anything her, but a cubicle. What's the term? I just lost the term. Her it's a hidey hole. Her hidey hole in New Haven. Oh, it's is, a womb of comfort and warmth. Is Emily Bazelon <laughs> of the New York Times Magazine. Hello. Hi, Emily, guys. What's up? Oh, you know, Thursday morning. Actually, super amounts of snow blowing outside my window. Oh, that's that, what's up. That's nice. There was none yeah, in Washington. Snowstorm. Washington got bypassed. On this week's GabFest, the legal fight over President Trump's immigration refugee ban. Then the confirmation battles over Betsy DeVos and Jeff Sessions and Elizabeth Warren's uh, spectacular grandstanding therein. Then... Saturday Night Live versus Trump does the spat over comedy of the portrayal of people in the administration. Is it important? Does it matter? Can it shape uh, public opinion and policy? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, should you go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner? Should you, listener? John, did you literally yawn at that question? That Slate Plus question? You literally I yawned. I think we've talked about this before. I know. I'm really remembering like... that we've already uh, all distanced ourselves from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Well, should we, do, should we instead talk about 1968? Sure. Sure. Yeah, we had stuff okay. to say yeah. about we're gonna cha- All right. We're going to keep all this in. We're gonna cha- we just had a fight before the show about 1968, so we're going to talk <laughs> about 1968. That's our Slate Plus. Whoa. No, no yawning from Dickerson on that one. <laughs> Just he woke right. perkiness. Everybody should go. Everybody should go. well oxygenated the, now. The whistle stop this week is about 1968, actually. Oh, so, good. Yeah. Yeah. And so you'll pl- even know things. And you, the, you, you totally just gamed us. You just got all the 68 reading, <laughs> I, and then you're going to come in with 76 examples. <laughs> Thank God. He'll know is, something. We'll have facts. You'll love it, You David. totally Minnesota fast it. <laughs> you showed up at the bar like you <laughs> staggering and now you're gonna hustle us oh that's so funny um and it's actually about abe fortis emily so uh oh, it's got a supreme good. court uh, angle all right if you are not yet a slate plus member go to slate.com slash gabfest plus two great announcements about live shows so as uh west coasters angelinos should know by now i hope we have a our first los angeles show on march 1st at the ace hotel Slate.com slash live for tickets. Uh, tickets are going fast to that show on March 1st in L.A. Please come. It's going to be great. And we can announce that we are having a show in Washington, D.C. on May 10th. That is the 100-day, just around 100 days of the Trump administration. We're going to do a 100-day show. It's at the Warner Theater. Tickets at Slate.com slash live for more information. So Wednesday, May 10th in D.C. Donald Trump's refugee ban went to court this week with an argument in front of a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
It was weirdly conducted by phone, which Emily, incidentally, it seems like a terrible way to do an argument, but we can I talk about that. I didn't get that. Although I loved that the audio was streaming. Yeah. It was the audio was streamed. It was listened to by hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people on a live stream. This was the Justice Department's appeal of a district court decision blocking most aspects of Trump's executive order that kept out uh, all refugees and and uh, the seven countries. We all know we don't need to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> Emily, what were the what were the legal issues at at under discussion? with this appeals court and how did the panel seem to lean before Emily gives the, um, uh, gives a, a, a wonderful proper setup answer. Can I just say, I was walking to dinner with the kids to get pizza and outside the pizza joint, a woman was sitting on the bark bench in the dark with a phone next to her ear, blaring, listening to the appellate court argument on her phone. It was just like a perfect Washington moment. Anyway, I sorry, was going to say, and you thought that's my hood. Mm. Let's see. So, before the case got to the Ninth Circuit, Judge Robart, who is the George W. Bush appointee in federal district court in Seattle, ruled against the government, granted a temporary restraining order to the state of Washington, and it was a national order. So it stopped the ban in its tracks. So in front of the Ninth Circuit, the burden then shifts to the government to prove why it will suffer irreparable injury if the ban isn't restored, right? So to get the temporary restraining order, Washington had to say, our residents are suffering, our economy is suffering. Now we have a kind of flip. And so that was the immediate legal question before the Ninth Circuit. Are all the circumstances here to think that the government needs to have this order back right away? Or can it remain suspended while this case on a more normal timeline gets litigated? So that's what they were talking about. The the big underlying issues were, well, first of all, should the court be reviewing this case at all? The government had taken the, I think, fairly extraordinary position that even the second, they, it, what what we normally think of as just judicial review, the government referred to as second guessing and said that um, the United States would be harmed merely by the fact that the court was doing the second guessing in the first place, also talked about the order as being unreviewable. So that was the first question is, do the courts get to decide where the, the president had the authority to do this? And then we had the issues of what kind of evidence the government has presented that this ban is necessary, that it's actually going to block terrorist acts, and whether it was motivated by religious discrimination. And, and again, is that the court's job? Should they be looking outside the four corners of the order at all the statements that Trump has made in which he made it clear that he was planning to prefer Christian over Muslim re refugees and, of course, talked about a Muslim ban? So that's what was on the table. Can I ask a question? Can you, Emily, straighten out just a little bit more, even for me, if not listeners? Um, there are two tracks here, right? There's still the track that um, Judge Robart, there's still legal proceedings going on there. This was a side debate over whether the temporary restraining order or the TRO should be lifted, right, for immediate necessary national security reasons, which right. is one legal thing, but it doesn't have to do with the underlying executive order, right? That's still being adjudicated. Or no. Right. Well, they get mixed up together because in order to get the temporary restraining order, you have to show likelihood of success on the merits, meaning that the courts think you probably or at least like plausibly could win. So that's the way in which the, the questions are mixed up in each other. And also we're going to the Ninth Circuit's going to rule and then there's going to be a question of whether this preliminary 
temporary restraining order part of the litigation goes up to the Supreme Court, perhaps passing through the whole Ninth Circuit on what's called en banc review, perhaps not. And then whatever happens with the TRO will go back to adjudicating the merits in the district court. And then it will kind of go up on the full briefing on a presumably more a slower timeline. There was a pretty strong piece by David French uh, in the National Review uh, saying that the president kind of blew this, that he threw away. He had a very strong set of facts on his side, that the law gives the the president very, very extensive powers to regulate Im- immigration, especially kind of on a temporary emergency basis, and that Trump totally snarled it up by his prejudicial comments about a Muslim ban during the campaign and then even after and even recently. He's, he snarled up with the, the kind of ill-thought reversals where they put the ban in place in one way. It applied to green card holders, take it away, blah, blah, blah. They're going back and forth about it. He snarled up by personally attacking judges and snarled up by not providing any real evidence that these countries were, in fact, a terror source or an immediate danger. Do you think that had they handled this this whole situation better, they they'd be in much stronger uh, legal position and they they wouldn't be on the defensive and losing here? Yes. I mean, I think the legal question is closer than David French laid out because he left out the part of the 1965 immigration statute in which Congress said that in the issuing of visas, you're not allowed to s- discriminate on the basis of religion and national origin and some other things. And so to me, the most interesting legal question is how do the courts square that mandate from Congress with the extraordinarily broad discretion they they have given the president to exclude classes of people. I don't think French gave enough weight to that. I will also just add that there are some, I don't know if irony is the right word, but I'll just note a tension here that, you know, usually discrimination on the basis of religion is the type of discrimination that conservatives are the most sympathetic to and concerned about. And also, and this is the part where I do agree with David French, Trump, in his statements, has provided the kind of smoking gun evidence of intent to discriminate that is rarely present in government action. So usually there's a fight between liberals and conservatives about whether a law can be struck down because it has a discriminatory effect, even though you can't show that the government was motivated um, by trying to discriminate. Here we've blown right past this barrier, which conservatives have tried very hard to erect. So that's just kind of a, a gift that Trump has given to opponents of this ban. John, Trump has followed the district court decision and then then even sort of the the arguments in the the circuit court with tweets attacking judges preemptively holding them responsible if there are attacks on the United States. Do you think that their the Trump administration's goal is to lose? Is the goal to lose and to have a scapegoat? Yeah, do you want the issue or the or the bill as they say in Congress? Uh does he want to win or does he want to have the issue on his side? This is where Uh, The David French argument has a countervailing argument. I would add one other thing to the David French argument. If you are a fan of Donald Trump's, you can ignore the protests from the people who don't like Donald Trump already. You can ignore, you know, uh, the Democrats. But when something that the president does acts to undermine something else he wants to do, then then you see the real 
problems of this. So you already outlined a number of the problems that, um, you know, he's hurting his own um, legal case by the things he said during the campaign, the things he continues to say. There's a huge blowback in the Muslim world. Um, There are plenty of smart scholars of terrorism who say the biggest problem in terrorism today is homegrown American threats. And if that's the biggest problem, you're only creating uh, more opportunity for homegrown threats because you're creating an us versus them condition. And then secondarily, if you were trying to figure out what are the top 10 things you would do to stop terrorism, homegrown terrorism would be number one. Number two would be visa waivers, which is the countries, the 38 countries from which people can enter the United States, including many in Europe, where you don't need a visa at all. And a lot of the attacks in Europe, which come from European citizens, could easily transmit to America through the visa waiver program. So if you really wanted to do this in the most logical approach, you wouldn't start with the refugee program, which isn't to say that it's not reasonable for a president to say, hey, let's take a pause and see how this program would work. But um, back to your original question, which I'll just say briefly, this is Ryan Liz's uh, argument in the piece he wrote, which is basically Trump uh, is fine with losing or hopes to lose so that he has a pretext if there is a terrorist attack to then just say the judiciary is totally discredited if they had uh, not interfered with my executive order on immigration, uh, we wouldn't have had this attack. And so they must be totally ignored. And then that allows him room to pass a whole series of more draconian anti-terror measures on surveillance or um, all kinds of other things. The, just on your, your American citizens point, um, there's been some great data gathering. Almost all of the people who've carried out attacks or have been arrested for planning attacks United States are not merely American citizens, but natural born American citizens, people who were born here. Emily, do you agree with the, with the Liza point that, it, that this is a setup? Yeah, I mean, Jack Goldsmith has been asking this question in Lawfare, too. I, It's chilling, right? I mean, it's the chess game, the idea of um, looking a few moves down the board. And I guess also, is this a win-win? Either they get the ban, which is, you know, fairly popular. It's not being condemned by the vast majority of the American people. And if they don't get the ban, then they have something to blame. And that was what really disturbed me about Trump's tweets about Judge Robart over the weekend. I mean, he actually said that if something goes wrong, this judge is going to be to blame. And, I, I, you know, I've been told by a couple of people that the U.S. Marshal Service is doing individual risk assessments of all the judges who have ruled in these cases because of the president's statements. And that is, we should pause on that. That's shocking. We should retain the ability to be shocked at the idea that the president would have such little interest in separation of powers and such little care for the judiciary that he would potentially put people at risk. There's a, this is a sort of slightly separate piece. There's a f- absolutely spectacular piece by Ezra Klein. That's a common phrase I'll use in Vox this week when he says that one of the reasons why Trump is dangerous in these things is that he has a supine Republican Congress, that there that the Republican Congress, should they choose to stand up and say, hey, you can't say this, you can't do these things, you, you, you've got to stop it, he would have to stop. But because yep. because the congressional party refuses to act as any check on him, his expansiveness and the, the, the way he can seize things or the way he can set us up for, for, for uh, what might follow after an attack is, is extended. And that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, you need, uh, they're called charismatic dissenters from within your own team, not just your normal opponents. McCain and Graham are the only ones. And it's particularly interesting to watch. Mitch McConnell is more uh, 
has more distance at the moment than Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan criticized the rollout here, but made a perfectly reasonable case since the House had already passed legislation to look at the refugee vetting program, made the reasonable case, look, this was just poorly rolled out. But I think at his heart knows that there are bigger problems here. This isn't just like a bad messaging that there are, at least this is based on reporting that I have with other Republicans, not Ryan, but others that they are worried that this demonstrates, uh, you know, patterns and habits and instincts that are going to be bigger for things down the road. And so if- Oh, they've realized that? Well, no, but here's- Wow. They've they've actually come to realize that? Well, no. Astonishing insight. How perceptive of them. Go ahead. So, but but the reason that's (laughs) sort of interesting is that what a lot of Republicans will say is, yes, you know, we don't like this and that and the other thing, but we're going to get all of these reforms that we believe in and we think are better for the country and deliver, uh, you know, on our promises to the country. So we'll hold off on saying anything publicly about X, Y, and Z for the for the burger tomorrow. They're going – so I've been talking to conservatives for a piece I'm working on about legal issues, and I am getting the same dynamic, which isn't surprising, right? I mean, if your party is in power and you're in the candy store, you want to get the candy off the shelves before you, like, toss out the proprietor because he's, like, a crazy jerk. It's, it's understandable, but it, – but then when you start asking people questions, they're having to really look past a lot of behavior that ordinarily would obviously dismay them. And I mean, to state the very obvious point, there's so many things Trump is doing that if Obama had like gotten anywhere near would have just turned the Republican Party and, and I hope the Democratic Party too as well, apoplectic. And I guess my question is just how far down the road do Republicans let Trump get? And will they really be able to stop him if they ever get up the gumption to do that? Can I also say one other thing that's that hems in the Republicans? We've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating, which is that when you talk to and anybody who supports Donald Trump and even Republicans, there are a lot of Republicans who are – not huge Trump supporters, but in the fight that's being set up, which is basically Donald Trump against the liberals and against the unhinged media, they're being driven into Trump's corner. And then the other group are people who look at this and say, you know, this debate about niceties is stupid. He's trying to protect us. He's out there fighting and and trying to protect our jobs. And like, once again, the elites totally have their eye on the wrong ball. And they're just proving over and over again why he was elected. And those voters in particular, as we've mentioned before, but it's a dynamic that's important, are the ones who are going to vote in the off-year election. And we'll talk about this with Elizabeth Warren. All right. Two, two points about this. Uh, two final points. When you talk about charismatic dissenters, John, one such charismatic dissenter may end up being... Donald Trump's own Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, who has been reported, accurately reported, apparently, to have told senators that he is finds it disheartening and demoralizing uh, that that President Trump would attack judges in the way that he has. And this has now been reported by two Democratic senators and then kind of basically confirmed by a third Republican senator, Ben Sass uh, of Nebraska. Emily, do you think that that this that Gorsuch's speaking out will have an effect beyond 
I mean, confer- getting him nominated, getting him confirmed, which really certainly going to help his confirmation. I mean, I don't want to sound totally cynical, but this just seems to me like a smart political calculation on his part and on the Trump administration's part. He gets to distance himself. He sounds like a man of integrity, and I'm not saying he's not, but he gets to take the high road, and Trump continues to do whatever he wants. I mean, Trump can hold his fire when he decides that that's in his interest. He also hasn't gone after Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who voted against Betsy DeVos this week in the education secretary vote. So I feel like there's it, this was free. It's free to let Gorsuch, you know, dissent. And I think the administration has been pretty smart about the letting those freebies go while attacking people like McCain and Graham, who maybe at some future date might actually do something as opposed to just speak up. Yeah, and I don't I don't think the public at large is going to get all bent out of shape about the separation of powers issue, even though it's important, even though we've had huge battles in previous Supreme Court confirmations about on the question of separation of powers, that it's like can be a huge deal. But I don't think people are going to, you know, so that goes to your point again, Emily, about it being essentially a free, free kick. And you don't think there's going to be I guess there hasn't been. There's there's not going to be a set of Republican legislators who are going to stand with Gorsuch and say, yes, these attacks are unconscionable. Well, only, McConnell, only Sass is kind of Senator mildly. McConnell said he didn't. Just, he thought it was a bad idea. Yeah. Basically, um, protect individual judges in a mild, gentle way. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump's cabinet room gets fuller by the day. This week, the Senate approved Betsy DeVos as education secretary, thanks to a tie-breaking vote cast by Vice President Mike Pence. Jeff Sessions, the new attorney general, was confirmed late on Wednesday. Sessions's confirmation prompted the most contentious uh, Senate debate so we've had so far. I guess DeVos also was contentious, but Sessions maybe more so, and certainly had the most viral moment of the hearing so far, which was what, Emily? Which was Elizabeth Warren trying to read into a record a letter that Coretta Scott King wrote in 1986 when Sessions was not confirmed for a judicial nomination. And this letter is about a voter fraud prosecution that Sessions brought um, that is really problematic for a number of reasons. And King's letter is quite eloquent about why she 
did not think that Sessions was fit to be a federal judge, and Mitch McConnell cut off Elizabeth Warren as she started to read this letter, saying that she was in violation of the rules against impugning a fellow senator. And the spectacle of Warren being silenced, trying to read a letter by, you know, Martin Luther King's wife, the sort of silencing of women that was going on here, it it was quite the Senate moment. Yes, it was amazing that she was warned. What was it? She was warned, then it was explained to her. Yes. But she she persisted. Nevertheless, she persisted. Nevertheless, Uh, those those ladies, they just won't sit down. um, Do you you guys think that this Warren protest, I mean, obviously, McConnell just should have let her read the stupid letter. No one would have noticed, really. Well, there is a counter argument. What's to, the counter argument? So the yeah, give it. so the one argument is oh how how crazy dumb of Mitch McConnell. It's um, gotten much more coverage than it otherwise would. The opposite case is there are ten Democrats up in 2018 in states that uh, Trump won. Those Democrats need to run as cent- more centrist than liberal. And so to the extent you can define the Democratic Party and uh, two things define the Democratic Party by its most liberal member a. And then B, create power in the most liberal members so that anybody running in those states has to repeatedly sort of do purity tests with that wing of the party. You keep them boxed in and tied down to that wing of the party, which makes it hard for them to run in their states because they have to raise money by being in the Warren camp and they worry about their voters on that stage. And that the worry for Republicans is democratic inroads on an issue like the Affordable Care Act where they can appeal to – the Republican base, those blue-collar voters, regular folk on issues that are meat and potato, and where Republicans are less worried is, again, because remember in an off-year election, the base of the Dem- Republican Party has traditionally turned out m- uh, more strongly than the base of the Democratic Party. That may all be up for grabs again now. Politics is totally shifting, but that's the rule as it has been, that they would rather Democrats be um, energized and defined as a party of um, special rights, as Republicans would see it, as opposed to a party actually fighting for regular people. And so McConnell would be happy to let the party be defined like this because he's thinking about those Senate races. That's the that's the counter argument. I had a more visceral explanation for what happened that goes yeah. along with what you're talking about, John. I mean, I think that what you just said makes a lot of sense. But I also think that there are a group of conservative white men in particular who are so – they are – just enraged at being tarred as racists or in any way associated with racial discrimination, um, even if they do things that have a discriminatory effect, that idea that being called a racist is like the most terrible thing that can happen to you in your life and that it's deeply, deeply unfair. It's running very deep right now. And Jeff Sessions stands for that because he was called a racist in 86 by African-Americans, by white liberal justice department lawyers, and that stopped him. So the sort of reemergence of that moment in um, in Senate history, in Sessions history, has just created this deep sense of defending him among this particular cohort. And I think that was part of what McConnell was acting on. You, you could also add to your case what Ted Cruz said in an interview on Fox, where he basically said, anytime you do anything as a conservative, uh, liberals call you a racist. 
And then from there, he went at, he went and said, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of the Ku Klux Klan. It was Dixiecrat, Southern Democrats who were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So the fact that he Which went- is just- Infuriating well, for people to say that. It well, is, it's it's it's, a tr- it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's totally true misleading. and totally misleading. Fine, yeah. But, but, my, but yeah. my point is that that to to Emily's point that he would go there represents, I think, um, a furtherance of what she's saying. Can I just add one other thing about Rule Nineteen, which is the rule that the Senate Majority Leader used to cut off Elizabeth Warren's. Remarks. I was reminded at that time about um, Tom Cotton when he went to the floor in May of 2016. The Republican senator from uh, Arkansas gave a blistering attack on Harry Reid in which he delivered this sentence. It's a much longer – he was talking about being in the Senate and he said that he presides over the Senate. I usually do it in the morning, which means I am forced to listen to the bitter, vulgar, incoherent ramblings of the minority leader. Normally, like every other American, I ignore them. I can't ignore them today, so on and so forth. So when you call another senator, and you didn't call him by name, which is part <laughs> of the way you can wiggle out of this, but it's, you know, vulgar, oh, incoherent, and bitter. Like, that's more <laughs> of an attack on a senator. But than, that's so, not impugning his motives. That's just <laughs> criticizing well, he him. he would say it's being truthful. Um, yeah. But I think, I guess the, the point I'm making is that Rule 19 is a pretty um, – malleable rule. And if you've got the majority, you can invoke it, you know, a lot more often than uh, than if you're in the minority. So is there any argument to be made? Your cotton example, John, puts maybe puts paid to this. Is there any argument to be made that we should want whoever we are, we should want this uh, rule upheld, even if it's a ridiculous rule, because the rules of the Senate are these norms that we want to maintain and the kind of institutional comedy that exists is something that's important and we don't want even these silly little things to wither or be abused. I just don't care about the Senate rules very much. I'm a huge fan of uh, the rules as long as obviously just in general, but as long as they're uh, they're equally applied. But in a world uh, where it's impossible to have reasoned debate anywhere and social media makes that much worse, I don't mind some rules that would be in the furtherance of reasoned debate. Now, you can argue Obviously, the opposite case of that, which is that when you don't even allow a president's Supreme Court nominee to come up for discussion on the pretext that it's in an election year, even though that didn't stop it in 1956 or 1988 or when John Quincy Adams named Marshall to the bench just a few months before uh, Jefferson became president, then you have wait for the other argument, which is, wait a minute, if they're going to throw out the the rules, why do we have to tie our hands behind our backs? I don't know uh, what the answer is, but I tend to come down on the side of, of, uh, of rules. Emily's like, screw the rules. Yeah, she wants to. Burn I don't it know. I mean, I guess if it, I really thought that it would help the senators work together if they didn't impugn each other in air quotes in the chamber, maybe I would see some value to that. It just seems a little artificial. And I generally come down on the side of more speech, not less. Yeah. Also, I guess somebody yeah. should address the actual text of the letter. In other words, this Which wasn't is a. Of- Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it was a substantive critique of Sessions' actions in which he prosecuted three black civil rights activists in Alabama for voter fraud in a situation in which there were a lot of allegations of shenanigans by white groups in, in a power struggle in these particular counties in southwest Alabama. That prosecution, which I've written about, is deeply problematic. So the idea that it was somehow out of line for Warren to read Coretta Scott King's discussion of this just seems like, yeah, really not 
the right answer. She also quoted former Massachusetts Democratic Senator Teddy Kennedy as saying about Sessions, he is, I believe, a disgrace to the Justice Department and he should withdraw his nomination and resign his position. This is back uh, from the 1980, from 1986. Yeah. And that actually calling him a disgrace, which is grounds uh, pr- presumably in this instance for uh, Rule 19, does seem actually closer to Cotton, to what Cotton said about about Reed. Um Disgrace, a word that President Trump likes to use about anyone he doesn't like as well. He's not a senator. Right. So suddenly it's okay. As long as you're the president, you do it on Twitter. As as we know, Trump doesn't think any of the rules. Well, it's also only this only applies to the floor of the Senate, right? This Mm -hmm. doesn't even apply to whatever. You can go call. You can go call anyone you want to disgrace on Twitter. You can, right. if you're a little or bit more. press conference. Or a press conference. You know, can, can I add one other thing to, to McConnell's calculation, which I think is a part of this, which is that for that base that I was talking about earlier, um, you know, the fact that Trump's uh, cabinet picks have been um, confirmed at a slower rate than Obama's is irritating. And so this is a high profile way for the Senate majority leader to say, hey, look, we're taking extreme measures. We're getting a lot of blowback for pushing this stuff through for, you know, we're on the team here and fighting the good fight against these recalcitrant Democrats. So it was an effort. It was a way for him to show, uh, hey, we're not just being supine in the face of their um, their delay tactics. Can I ask a question about parliamentary Senate tactics? So Sessions' confirmation was delayed, right? And that meant that he could vote for Betsy DeVos. Like, without him, they wouldn't have had 50 votes. Was that a... Did the Democrats blow that? Should they have oh, let so Sessions? Totally. I got a totally different take on this. The Senate, they they gave Murkowski yeah. and yeah. Collins, Collins, Collins permission. They gave him permission to, to cast those votes against. And if they well, if they I thought he was going down, they would have just made Murkowski or, Devo- or, or, right. or Collins cast a vote, vote in favor. I think that's okay. right. And they, got a high, and they got a high profile again, again for Republicans. Again, like – you know, we, we, I think one of the dynamics to keep an eye on is as much as there is upset and nervousness in Republican ranks about Donald Trump, there are rallying moments, um, that bring everybody back in. One is, uh, the way a lot of, um, Reluctant Republicans see Trump being attacked by the press. That's one. The other is Gorsuch, the Gorsuch nomination. People who yep. think like, yep, he's going to be doing the kinds of things on the court that we believe in for 40 years. That's wonderful. I think DeVos is another one, which is, you know, there was this high profile moment where the vice president, Mike Pence, guy that came in, cast the tie breaking vote, got a lot of coverage. And that's kind of mainstream for choice advocates in the school, um, which includes some Democrats. Betsy DeVos is is not the the boogeyman, uh, and so to have a big public moment where they carry her across the finish line, um, right? Is against just fine against the teachers union, yeah, against the, exactly against the horror show that is the teachers unions, yeah. right? But should Schumer have called the bluff and forced either Collins or Murkowski to vote for her because they got a lot of cred for you know ostensibly standing up and and so doing that what get let sessions go through early in order to in order yeah i just think it's like i don't know that just i don't know did they commit their votes before the senate delayed session it was all around the same time last week if you're schumer though isn't the bigger get the fight over sessions it's for your base it's a much more visceral thing the um, and so delaying that for a week counts more than because delaying someone for a week is not that big a deal no but for for schumer's base devos was a huge deal if you think of the base as being Teachers unions are a huge source and uh, of, but, of and public school 
families are a huge source of support for Democrats generally. I think that's a, that's a fair point. But I think African-Americans on the question of being denied the vote is a more visceral but couldn't uh, he have had both? Could I mean, his cake and eat it too? Uh, I don't know. I'm out of my depth here in terms of how I, that would have I mean, worked. I, I think the one they've blown is Tom Price. Price. That Price is an extremely vulnerable uh, right. nominee. He has so, so compromised. Yeah, he's so well, much, yeah. so many yeah. shady deals. On one of the deals, he told the Senate in testimony that the offer that he was given by the company was available to any investor in the company. And then the Wall Street Journal subsequently reported that it was only available to a small number of people. And 20, he was one of them. 20, 20 people. Right? Yeah. So, so he made a false statement to Congress. Maybe it was a mistake, but it was a false statement. It's one thing to sort of, you know, ideological back and forth and whatever, but like making a false statement to Congress about a thing that's at the center of what Donald Trump supposedly ran on, which is draining the swamp. And the swamp at least is occupied in part by people who use their positions to to help themselves. If that's an open question, then this is not frivolous to think, hey, there's something worth pause, pausing for a moment here on. Um, so, anyway. Well, also substantively, if you assume that price is going to be, you know, 80 percent effective at undermining the Affordable Care Act and and any next nominee will be 70 percent effective at undermining the Affordable Care Act. If you're a Democrat like that is that is causing that's substantial. A, that's a substantial save. It's like a it's a thing. Getting rid of the Affordable Care Act will cause damage to people Democrats care about, namely Americans, at a much greater rate than even Betsy DeVos or Jeff Sessions can can do. So I think he I think I think the price skip over is an error and maybe they're going to get the labor secretary's head. Maybe they're going to get Pudzer or something. That'll be the one they shoot down. But who cares? It's they, well, they, that's not nothing either. I, I'm not on who cares land, but I do think you're right about price. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There was a weird story in Politico this week that Donald Trump has been unsettled by a Saturday Night Live skit that featured Melissa McCarthy, the very wonderful comedian Melissa McCarthy, as Sean Spicer, the White House spokesman, communications director, uh, McCarthy played Spicer last weekend as an incredibly aggro, bloviating asshole. It was a manic imitation of Spicer, not completely without merit. The point that Politico made, very thinly sourced point that Politico made, was that it was thought that Trump thought this made Spicer look weak because McCarthy was a woman. Trump in general has seemed obsessed with the comic mockery of him on Saturday Night Live, uh, Alec Baldwin's portrayal of him. The comedians appear to be very excited that what they're doing is affecting the administration. John, do you think that Trump does actually care about the portrayal of himself or of his press secretary on Saturday Night Live? I think that we can build a case for yes, which I – and I, the reason I phrase it that way is, is, you know, I haven't talked to the president about this and – you know, there is so much thinly sourced reporting about what he believes or doesn't believe. I think we should all uh, welcome the opportunity to not guess at it. But I think if you were to build the case, you would build it on this. One, he's commented many different times in the course of his career about appearance above all. I know when he talked about Mitt Romney that his 
first and repeated point was that he looked the part. He cares about his own appearance and how it is portrayed. So I also, I guess I would say another thing is that with the New York Times and CNN, where he says, you know, they're failures and they're losing and they're dishonest and they're horrible, he nevertheless is drawn to them deeply. And, and, and you know, if for no other reason than to just sort of rail at their latest outrage, he's watching uh, Saturday Night Live in that same way. If you you know that he's watching it, you know that he watches it to be outraged, but also with a kind of fascination that represents some respect for the institution, if you could think of Saturday Night Live as an institution, and we know he puts a premium on on appearance, all of that would suggest that this, you know, has the ring of truth to it. Why do you think he is so thin-skinned about this stuff, Emily? He's, it really seems to be one of his greatest vulnerabilities. He, 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 it's, it is, I mean, he's obsessed with appearance, but he also, he seems to be very vulnerable to humiliation and mockery. I mean, he's a TV star. That's how he rose to prominence and the idea that how you're portrayed on television, how your image gets projected to millions of people, whether you can use television to paper over any actual real problems with your business or your political message. That just seems like just crucial, fundamental to the whole identity of Donald Trump. So, And he cares a great deal about the kind of acceptance that SNL or other TV programming brings, right? I mean, he's supposedly like this great bull in a china shop in Washington in a lot of ways he is, but he also, we've seen him, for example, at that dinner in New York, the Al Smith dinner, was that what it was called? Where you could see on his face and in the kind of bad jokes he was making, including a pretty mean joke at the expense of Melania Trump, you can see how much he's craving the the kind of um, approval of this set of people, even as he's also at rallies, like supposedly kicking them in the, in the teeth. And there's also just a way in, when SNL cuts someone down to size, as McCarthy did with Spicer last weekend, like, it it's funny, and it it's biting and it gets to like some fundamental attribute of some how someone is coming across in real life. But what good does that do? What good does it do to humiliate and embarrass or or to you know to to correctly satirize? I'm mean, that's a really good question. I guess one thing is that it gives people who are enraged and horrified by the administration an outlet, a kind of sense of relief and that someone gets it. I don't know whether that translates into real action or whether it's actually like an excuse for not doing real action. But in this moment when there's a lot of demonstrating and an enormous amount of calling one's member of Congress, maybe there's a way in which the idea that the humor and the comedians are are on the, the side of the dissenters is meaningful in some way. Um, and maybe there's a way in which the people who are being portrayed in this demeaning manner, then change their behavior so that they're trying to escape it. I don't know. If you believe that the traditions and standards that should roughly constrain both the press and the White House are in disarray, then this kind of thing, if it's more powerful than 10,000 op-eds in the New York Times, in resetting those standards and reminding those 
you know, and has some effect in resetting those standards, then that's that's interesting. And it's it's also interesting in the sense that remember Barack Obama appeared in all kinds of different venues to try to get his message across. This is kind of the reverse of what he was trying to do. So he shows up on Between Two Ferns to try to get his message out to a different audience and have an effect that's um, hopefully better than the effect he wasn't having at all through the traditional roots. And so this is – Donald Trump has obviously figured out how to use Twitter to basically set the news agenda every morning. He gets up at 4.30, tweets, and that's – he owns the morning. I mean he can totally control the conversation. Uh, and he did it again Thursday morning. There was you know, the conversation about his Supreme Court nominee saying that he was disheartened by Trump's comments about the judiciary and by tweeting out um, in the mo- early in the morning about Senator Blumenthal with whom Judge Gorsuch had a meeting in which he said this – talking about Blumenthal's uh, misinformation about his Vietnam record, changed the topic. Like that suddenly became the topic on morning television. So if the media is being used in that way, this Saturday Night Live phenomenon, if it exists, suggests a a way in which the new media or non-traditional media can cut against an administration that that does a pretty good job of knowing how to bait the media and control it. That's a really good point. As someone who finds the control of the media via Twitter to be enormously frustrating. I have a, th- a vague theory. It's an ill-thought-out theory, but let me let me float it like I float all my ill-thought-out theories on the show. The 10.6 million people that watch Saturday Night Live no doubt had a great sense of satisfaction at this mockery. It's a very tiny number, however. I think liberals that, – that actually one of the most powerful feelings in politics is – is resentment now and it's a resentment at being mocked and derided and feeling that people think they're better than you are and by the cultural elite by the cultural elite and one of the problems that liberals have now is that they completely control the culture Hmm. all of the levers of of cultural credibility belong to liberals they get to write songs that attack trump they get to do concerts that attack trump they get to go on every comedy program that wants to do anything gets to to mock uh humiliate and and deride trump and trump's people uh and that's very satisfying and you know they're all of their portrayals are correct and they're right about everything but what they've done is they've just they've in this sense of victimhood that a lot of people feel in the sense that they are being looked down upon just multiplies when the the culturally approved voices are all saying the same yeah. thing and right, that's what i worry a- about yeah, and it's not a message of empathy. It's not a message of reaching totally. out to people who support Trump. It's a message of like if you want to be with the hipster kids, you got to like t- completely scorn this person. So if you're not already in that camp, what one of the things that has really stuck with me from interviewing Trump supporters after the election was how many women mentioned to me with a lot of anger and dismay the um what they called elite celebrities who were on hillary clinton's side they brought up katie perry a lot so katie perry is not really an elite person like that's not her background but to the these women it was just really frustrating they were like hurt i think by the idea that these people whose music they'd been buying were telling them how to vote that was how they put it this sort of feeling of like why is she telling me how to vote doesn't she realize like where her sales come from and also i mean this goes back to what i was saying earlier about driving people into the president's corner who might not otherwise be enormous fans of the president's um is they not only did they feel like Katy Perry was telling them how to vote, she was telling them how to be women. There was a deep cultural self-identification 
claim that she was making, maybe not herself, but as a, a you know supporter of Hillary Clinton, all of the claims came through her, and that that is that gets fires burning that are super powerful in terms of resentment at the elites right. who are making right. these points at someone else's expense. I think it's exactly right. I mean, I, yeah, I, that's a really go ahead. No, I mean, I just think with with this like this Melissa McCarthy thing, it's there's this sort of sense of liberal smug satisfaction about this. Like, we really got it over on them this time. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe. Well, the question is, are you persuading people? And I think you're probably not. That pe- that Trump supporters are looking to see what actually happens to their lives, not like... And, and also that this election was so polarizing and that you had to decide against Katy Perry or Beyonce's conception of what it means to be a woman or a feminist. And so you've made a pretty deep set of commitments to Donald Trump, just given the way the election played out, and that it's going to be harder to peel people away if you continue to make them feel like they're being like their guy is being mocked and resented as opposed to just like is failing to deliver what he promised to deliver. I mean, this is the answer that Italians give about how they finally got rid of Silvio Berlusconi, right? That that it wasn't treating him as this object of mockery and this buffoon. It was treating him as a failed politician who just right. wasn't right. making people's right. lives better. Right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you are having a um, a very delicious, I would guess John is having a bourbon. What are you going to be chattering about with Mrs. Bourbon, John? Actually, I'm um, uh, much more gin than bourbon. You know, I, John If I'm anything bourbon. at all. I mean, I used to drink bourbon a long time ago, but anyway. Um, so I am uh, chattering about a piece in The um, Guardian about people – they've found 60 of them in the world with hyper intense – personal memories. And so they basically, these are people who remember everything they did at every time in their life. Um, So the main character, Jill Price, uh, can say what she was doing when she first heard uh, a Rick Springfield song, um, what she was doing on January 10th, 1981. It is an amazing skill for those of us who forget is it a curse but it it is but of course says you can feel the piece turning and then of course it does that it becomes a curse and it's called by the way uh, the the sort of scientific name is highly superior autobiographical memory and basically she says that it's like living with a split screen on the left side is the present and on the right is the constant real you know movie reel of memories because everything initiates a a recollection about the past and a specific one that is not just something you can ignore. Anyway, it's a great piece. It's quite a long piece, but I recommend it to anybody who um, is interested in how the brain works and who also, like me, feels like you're not really sure what happened to your past. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, what's your... I'm sorry to go back to Trump land, but um, Trump's tweet this week, and now I'm letting him drive my news. I apologize to everyone. But this tweet about Nordstrom's attacking Nordstrom's for discontinuing Ivanka's fashion line raised a question of whether anyone could sue. Could Nordstrom sue over this? Norm Eisen, who's one of the uh, kind of ethical watchdogs in Washington, said he would help if anyone wanted to bring a suit, particularly under the Unfair Practices Act in California, which is pretty broad. You know, you can take on someone for any kind of unfair interfering with uh, unfair 
helping of your competition. So maybe there's a lawsuit there. And if anyone, if Nordstrom <laughs> wants to try, they obviously should go talk to Norm Eisen. But I'm just struck once more by the mistake that the United States seems to have made in imagining that it was not necessary to hold the president to any kind of conflict of interest laws as opposed to norms. We just always imagined that if you use the president for your own gain and turned it into like a mountain of self-dealing, that the electorate wouldn't stand for that. And um, and that's the protection we've had and is just proving really unequal to the task. I, I would like someone to go and actually do the research on this. But I read a biography of George Washington recently. And the because I actually don't remember very much. The only thing I actually remember from that biography of George Washington was that he seemed to have spent most of his presidency trying to enrich himself and doing deals to expand U.S. trade out along the Potomac and sort of into the interior of the country in ways that would massively benefit him. And that, that so really, that he didn't, that he didn't really think about being president nearly as much as he thought about his own business interests. And one reason why I think the capital ended up in Washington was that, that uh, where it did was that, that George Washington was convinced that the Potomac was going to be the artery that was going to knit the country together. The Potomac was going to be the major trading river of the country. And, and he had bought a bunch of land that, would would benefit when that happened. David so I Klein, don't know on the side of so, corruption so, once more. So I just <laughs> I just I wonder if that in fact that one of the reasons why this wasn't constitutionally mandated was mm. that in fact we had a president who basically was a businessman who wanted to carry forth his business. Well, I oh. don't know. It's not looking like Washington's most happy legacy then. But I'll, I'll also we should just mention again the context in which this takes place, which is that, you know, claims were made about self-enriching politicians or politicians right. doing things that right. enrich themselves right. at the cost of the regular people. And so if and if you're Chelsea going to Clinton being on the Clinton Foundation board yeah, was and a major explosion. So if you're if you're going to rise to the White House by championing those norms and suggesting they should be stronger, then like you've got to answer for instances in which you seem to bump up against the thing that you made such a big deal about in the campaign. Apparently Nordstrom's stock is up instead of down. One of my my sources inform me. Perhaps that is no longer true at this moment, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, speaking of self-dealing, self-dealing, I'm going to use my first of two chatters for total self-dealing, which is that uh, one, of the, one of the things that's been most useful to me at Atlas Obscura, the, the wonderful company I run, is that I've a number of the people I've hired are people who knew about Atlas Obscura because I talked about it on the GabFest or knew the GabFest. And I, I need your help. We have a bunch of great jobs open. So if you're listening and you're a recent college graduate who's interested in media, for example, and you're maybe you're interested in the business side of media, we have a couple of great jobs on the business side at Atlas Obscura that could use an incredibly smart, energetic person who wants to learn how to make media work as a business. It's They're fascinating um, in fact, a former Slate intern had this job that we're now hiring for, and she did a fantastic job. So could really use your help. And we have a bunch of other jobs. So please, if you're interested in coming to work at Atlas Obscura with me, go to atlasobscura.com. And there's a work with us thing at the bottom of every page and click on that. And, and uh, I really want to hear from you. That's not my real chatter. My real chatter is something which I'm sure Emily knows about, which I'm I feel like I'm the last person to learn about, which is the Bronx Freedom Fund which is from David Feige. Emily is nodding wisely, but it seems like such a great venture. And so David Feige, who is a, actually used to write for us at Slate back when... when and I was, was a Slate. public defender at the Bronx 
Yeah. More importantly, probably. Yes. And it's gone yes. on to many other, many other things. Yes. And so he has set up this thing, which uh, this philanthropy, which collects money to pay bail for thousands of New Yorkers awaiting trial, in particular people in the South Bronx. And And one thing that happens is that people don't have money to make bail. They end up in jail. They start to lose their job, their houses. They lose time with their family. And so the idea is this is a, a fund that is going to provide bail to people so that they can continue with their lives and their lives don't fall apart when they're facing charges. It seems like a really noble, smart idea that that uh, deals with a small problem that can kind of cascade into an enormous problem for people. So Even better solution, not requiring money bail in all but a very small number of cases, which is actually a big um, experiment that New Jersey has just begun. They essentially have not completely, but almost ended bail as a and bail you know has all kinds of troubling dimensions it it, it really um induces people to plead guilty it it just yeah that's great i heard about yeah. this because actually it turns out there are a bunch of people in new york who end up with one dollar bails and end up in staying in jail for a long period of time even though they have one dollar bail because of sort of bureaucratic snafus they're not aware of it they're not allowed if you're in yourself in jail, you're not allowed to pay your own bail. And so they're sitting there for, for lack of a dollar for months. That is really depressing. So there's a separate, the, so the Bronx Freedom Fund has started the dollar bail fund, which is even more, um, an, an even nicer way to kind of help people out. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster of podcasts at, listen to this new URL, panoply.fm. Listen to that, panoply.fm. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Subscribe to the Gabfest on some app where you listen to your podcast. Please do that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 